on this episode of The James Quandall Show. Are you being sarcastic? Are you being overly emotional? Anger is a big issue uh, for many men, where, and especially, and I don't know why this is, I know it was true in my life, and God really had to work on this with me, is that we feel like the people closest to us can handle the brunt of our anger. We can cut loose with them. Today, Dr. Gil Stiglitz and I sat down to discuss how I can become a better husband. Dr. Gill is the author of the book, Becoming a Godly Husband. The hardest thing a man will ever do is really love his wife. In this book, he breaks down dozens of proven tactics into an easy-to-remember acronym, HUSBAND. Honor, understanding, security, building unity and direction, agreement, nurture, and defender. We spoke on the difference between saying I'm sorry and asking for forgiveness, how to show praise, ignore criticism, and extend comfort instead and how Dr. Gill agrees with me that we should be staying on our honeymoon forever and that we need to continually put effort into our marriages. We covered all of this and much, much more on this episode, so please enjoy. First off, what I want to kind of just discuss is I did, I found your book when I was reading a blog. It was recommended on a sidebar somewhere as a a book I may like. I don't remember the article. The book is called Becoming a Godly Husband. I loved the title. I ordered it immediately. And it took me a while before I started reading it. But once I started getting into it, I said, okay, this is really great because it doesn't just point at a problem that I already know exists because I'm pretty sure everybody can agree that there's a marriage problem going on. But what it did is it actually gave you tools and tactics and and a series of pieces to actually work on your own marriage. And what was really cool, I thought, was how basic it began a lot of these sections. Very, very simple. To the point where I've only been married, I'm coming up on my two-year anniversary of marriage, and uh, I still consider us on our honeymoon. And I tell people, I said, okay, we have this Why does a honeymoon have to end exactly? Like, why is the honeymoon only two weeks long? Why can't I continue the honeymoon? It's up to me to determine when it ends. And I'm going to say it's not going to end. Why why does it have to? And obviously, you know, I get so many uh, cynical responses to that of the thing like, oh, you don't really know what you're talking about yet. Wait until seven years in or wait until that. And I go, no. I'm putting my foot down because I'm going to do the work. <laughs> yes, good for you. Good for you. No, I think that the, um, the, the whole process of learning how to be a great husband and or a great wife and uh, how that flows is, is just incredibly powerful. Um, and uh, thank you for having me uh, on the show and, uh, and be able to talk about this crucial topic. And before we started recording, we were sort of talking about two of the what I would call maybe the turning points of um, of a marriage where it seems like the majority of, of divorces are occurring in these two sections. And what you said to me actually really surprised me. I knew that it was very common for a separation after a baby was born. That, that I had known. But when you talked about nearing or at retirement that just that just really caught me off guard because to me that would be like, well, this is great. This is where we can go enjoy the world together. Why do you think that that's the period where that's starting to happen? Well, at least what I'm seeing uh, in talking with people, interacting with the people that I talk with, 
and the statistics that I'm reading is that basically the marriage has somehow found a way by his being at the office or her being at work or whatever else to exist um, because you only have to relate to one another about one hour a day. Um, but then when you have to relate to each other and you have to either become really good friends and really enjoy one another, um, oftentimes what I'm seeing is the, the wife is saying, I don't, I don't like you. you. You are not the kind of person that I would enjoy being with. And we now have the economic resources for me, at least many wives believe, to divide the estate, divide the time, divide the pensions. And I would rather be alone uh, with the kids and the girlfriends than I would be with you all the time. And what don't they like about their husbands, do you think? Well, I, I think that the, uh, the most husbands do not have the relational skills to develop a really close friend, a best friend in a wife's definition. Um, and what what's happened is most guys, their idea of a really good friend is someone who shares a common interest, something, some common activity. And that's the way we're built as guys. Um, but women typically um, have a much higher bandwidth in terms of friendship and their friendships are built much more on the idea of a close or intimate friendship in which I share feelings, I share my needs, and you share those with me. And uh, that's a whole nother level of friendship. And she's, she thought when she was getting married that she was going to have an intimate marriage in which this man that she fell in love with, who was going to provide and do a number of other things and was going to become her best friend. And what many, many women find is, is that the man they married is not equipped with the people skills to pull off the kind of marriage that he really wants and she wants. And uh, I, I think uh, maybe I can just tell the story of, of my own uh, process. Um, I went uh, through my 20s and dated a number of different young ladies. Um, and essentially, uh, I remember the first lady dated for a couple of years and it was just a delightful time. And I said, hey, I'm ready to go to the next level. What do you think? And, and she just looked at me and she said, you? Absolutely no way. Never, never marrying you. And uh, and I was kind of shocked because we spent- Really? <laughs> well, why are you dating me then? <laughs> yeah, I was like, what, what are we doing here? You know, we spent all this time together and everything. And then to emphasize, we were in college at the time getting ready to finish. And, and she came back after Christmas break, engaged to her previous boyfriend to just emphasize that it's not you. And I, I was kind of crushed by all that. And then so I thought, okay, well, there's other fish in the sea. Um, you know, after a while I healed up and so started dating another young lady and, and chased her and dated her and interacted with her for six years and then said, Hey, I'm ready to go to the next level. Um, I think this is really the one. And, and she just looked at me and, and she said, no, no way. And, and I said, well, could you tell me why? And, and she said, you dress funny, you're too loud. Um, and, uh, you love Jesus way too much. And I thought, okay, wow, that, this is really weird. And so that was crushing to me. Then I started dating another young lady and, uh, and she was a psychologist. She was uh, brilliant, uh, beautiful, amazing. And, uh, and she came to me, she said, cause this looks like it's getting serious. And I just want to let you know, it won't get serious. And, and I, I was kind of crushed and, you know, I was like, wow, wow. And then finally, there was a young lady who'd been chasing me for a long time. And I kind of turned to her and said, well, what do you think about dating? And she said, I've studied you and I've dated you and I've wanted to be in a relationship with you. And the more I know about you, I realize I don't. And so I, 
I was like dumbfounded. And uh, so I just came to the place where I was like, I remember sitting um, in my office and just this flyer came across the desk and I had a prompting from the Lord. I thought that just said, you need to go to the seminar. It was, you know, how to be a, uh, you know, better marriage or something like that. And I heard concepts that I had never heard in my life. And it, and really, I remember explaining my story to the speaker, the fellow who became fairly famous for marriage advice uh, back years ago. Um, and he put his arm around me and said, yeah, you've got serious problems, but I'm willing to help you. And uh, I'm willing to have you come to all my seminars for free. Come talk to me and I'll mentor you. And uh, for four and a half years, uh, one of the guys who was one of the leaders in the United States on, on marriage really kind of mentored me through his books, through the seminars and changed my complete perspective. And then I said, could I put it, could it put my version of what I think you taught me in my own book? And he said, yeah, go for it. And that became becoming a godly husband. When I finally met my wife, um, she didn't know that I'd been a complete screw up uh, in my 20s. And she thinks I'm just the greatest. And we've been living a honeymoon for 34 years because God just took me to the woodshed uh, and uh, said, you and my whole theory is if I can change, anyone can change. If, if I can figure out how to do this, if I can, you know, and basically I believe scripture and God and friends and mentors uh, guided me to learn how to do these seven basic skills that will allow uh, a man um, and or I have to say, and I'm learning a lot of things now as we go through this new generation, is that the principles in becoming a godly husband work for men, and they also work for the most dominant personality in the marriage. And 30% of the time, that's a woman in the marriage. Um, and so, you know, those same kind of ideas flow forward. Um, and uh, so I'm just rambling away here. I don't know what you want. No, that's great. And so thinking back to to your 20s and those women that uh, were okay with spending time with you, but when it came to going to the next level, they they ran for the hills. Were they right looking back? They had a perception that there's no guarantee that uh, Gil Stiglitz is going to, um, he presents a good thing. He's a you know provider. He's all these kinds of things, salesman, all this stuff. Um, and, and, but I, I can't trust that intimacy, emotional intimacy, mental intimacy is going to work well uh, with this man. Mm-hmm. And I would love to go through your 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 steps, but I'm curious where it's getting. Where are we not learning this from? Where should you have maybe learned these skills from prior to your twenties? Like, where's where's the missing link? Um, you know, what's interesting is I I keep trying to, you know, it's not taught in schools in in public schools or whatever else. It's not um, it's not been taught uh, in any kind of business courses. The closest we get are some of the people skill courses in the business world, um, but they're not usually directed at, uh, you know, friendships and, and relationships of an intimate nature. Um, and so that's why I started just teaching it at church. It's um, now not everybody's going to church, uh, but we found a tremendous uh, change, a tremendous power to just teaching. If you'd like to know how to actually love your spouse, how to love your wife, come to this class. And uh, it it just began to change. Man, this is amazing. I had never heard this stuff. And, and then they began to see almost immediate results in their marriage and in their spouse. And uh, wow. it was like, 
In fact, let me tell you the, if I can tell you this one story, I always tell at the beginning of, if I'm talking. You can tell me as many stories as you you like. I I love your stories so far. So you go ahead. I remember I had, I had just come to this church. I was kind of a young pastor and I had been working on this material personally. And, uh, and the lady came up to me, she called me on the phone. She said, my marriage is falling apart and I need your help pastor. And I was single at the time, um, as a single pastor at this church and, and, uh, and so she came to see me and she said, I'm just here to let you know as a courtesy to you that I'm leaving my husband. And I thought, ah, you can't, you can't do this. And, and I, you're one of the most prominent families and everybody thinks you've got a great marriage. She said, it isn't a great marriage, it's a horrible marriage. And then she proceeded for the next hour to tell me why her husband was a jerk. And I tried to tell her for the next hour why it was important for her to stay and why she should stay. And at the end of the hour, she had convinced me that he was a complete jerk. Um, she had all the facts, all the data, and, uh, and so I completely run out of things to say to her. And so then I said to her, I just had this thought. I thought maybe the Lord prompted me. And, and I just said, would you do me a favor? And she said, Pastor, what favor could I possibly do? And I said, I said, would you do me the favor of waiting five weeks before you leave your husband? And uh, she said, why should I do that? I said, it probably won't make any difference. But your husband has signed up for this new class I'm just starting called Becoming a Godly Husband. And uh, We'll be three weeks in, in five weeks. And it just, would you just be willing to wait five weeks? And she said, pastor, as a courtesy to you and only to you, I will wait five weeks to leave the jerk. And I thought, and I remember after she left, I thought, this has got to work. This has really got to work. And uh, so I remember she came with her husband to church five weeks later and she, they'd been coming along, but she came and she was all dolled up. She was all you know, hair and dress and everything. And I thought, ah, she's hunting for the next Mrs. You know, Mr. So-and-so she's going to get some. And I, ah, and then I watched her go and talk with different groups of women around the church and she would lean in and they would lean in and then everybody would go. And and I thought, ah, she's telling them, she's telling them. And uh, so as a part of a pastoral courtesy in order to pray more effectively, I leaned in to hear what she was saying. And to my shock, she said, I heard her say to one group of women, oh, if you had a husband like my husband, you would be falling in love with him just like I am again. It's amazing. God is doing miracles in his life. And I went, it works. It works. And what, what I realized was that the principles in scripture, the, the, the changes that husbands can make that are fairly simple, um, you know, even as you and I have been talking about. This is not rocket science, although for some of us, it feels like it. Now, I've been talking about this material and teaching this material now for over 30 years and uh, helping marriages. And here's what I understand. Men do not know how to meet the relational needs of their wife. They just don't. And uh, that, that's why we put it in the book. This has been the most successful book that I've, I've authored. It just helps guys understand the why and the how of how do I make the kind of marriage I really want. Now, what I've also discovered is that women, on the other hand, they know exactly how to meet their husband's relational needs. They just don't think he's earned the right to have it done to him. And that that whole dynamic of, I know what he needs, but he's not doing anything. In fact, I had one woman in a counseling session process, just look at her husband and said, I know you want intimacy, 
but I don't remember you doing anything in this last week to meet my emotional intimacy needs. So no, you can't have any. And it was like, whoa, we got some issues here. You know, we got to talk our way through this process. But uh, so, uh, you know, I'm, it just seems like I have more and more and more stories of people. If, if a guy will grab a hold of these seven ideas, these seven relational needs that he didn't even know she had, because he doesn't have them. These aren't typically in his makeup. Now, some guys do, but it will change the nature of the marriage and usually very quickly. Now, is this, is it, I know you have three daughters. Is it possible to teach this behavior within your household to your sons and daughters? Oh, yes. Uh, yes. And now it has to be when they want to hear it. You know, like each of my, I have one daughter who's now getting married uh, here in just a little bit. And, and, uh, you know, and I sit down, you know, and I've sat down with each of my girls and said, okay, here's what men are about. And you need to understand that largely you can't trust them because they're thinking about this and you need to find a man who can do these things for you. Um, and what, are, so what do you tell, I want to, I want to hear what you tell them in that scenario. Well, you need to have someone who will honor you and put you first. Um, we sometimes call it putting you on a pedestal. And uh, my daughter who's getting married, she's found a wonderful young man that we just couldn't be more excited about. And uh, he just puts her up on a pedestal. And, and uh, uh, so that's the first thing. Does he know how to honor you? Um, or is he going to be, now many guys in the dating process know how to honor because they're in conquer mode. They're in, I'm going to, you know, bag the big trophy, put it on the wall, and then I'm going to go off to business. And I will say that most, uh, most men, after they get married, they feel all the rockets and the jets of, I'm going to have a super successful career start kicking off inside of them. And it's very easy to be tempted to switch your focus from, I'm going to have a great marriage to, I'm going to have a great business life. And my wife's just along for the ride. And, uh, so that, that switch can't happen. The, you know, the second thing I, I tell them is you have to have a man who's willing to learn how to understand you. Um, and uh, my, uh, my daughter, who's, who's getting married, I remember I was like a third or fourth date. They came to our house for dinner and, and he, he just looked at me and he said, describe your daughter to me. Tell me what you think of her. And I said, she's a butterfly. She, she will make any environment beautiful and delightful. And she's just, but she's going to be flitting around and, and, you know, and she's just wonderful. And I said, you have to understand that you have to, you, she's not, she's not going to be the executive type to run, you know, XYZ corporation for you or whatever else. And uh, so, you know, as I explained to them, you have to have a man who understands you. Um, and uh, it, what's interesting is uh, I'll just stop and tell you another little story here. The, uh, the Bible says something to, to men that men believe in America is impossible. It says you have to live with your wives in an understanding way. I was at a, a function in a community function, um, and uh, I was carrying a book, which is really a very good book. Um, it's called Understanding the Mind of a Woman, written 40, 50 years ago now, um, that is really, really good. And I remember carrying it around and a lot of different people were there and, and three business leaders in the community came up to me and read the title of the book that I was carrying. Um, and they said, what is it, a blank book? And I said, oh my goodness, you guys are just clueless. You just completely clueless. And there is this idea that somehow it's impossible to 
understand how a woman thinks, why she does what she does. And I can remember when I was uh, dating my wife, the woman who became my wife, um, and I realized uh, the first night, I said, this is her. This is the best I'm ever going to see, the best I've ever seen. This woman is awesome. I don't know how, I, how I'm going to sell her on me, but I got to do this. In fact, I called my best friend that night. I said, I found her. I found her. I, I, I've got a seller, but I found it. And uh, I think the selling part, as you said, in the honoring, that's the easy part. Yeah. It's actually delivering what you promised on. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so so I, I began to tell this woman who would become my wife, I said, my job is to understand you more than you understand yourself. And, uh, and so I began the process of learning. And in fact, my wife was diagnosed clinically uh, before I knew her as uh, extreme PMS. And uh, that, and her, even her father came and warned me after I started dating her. Oh, you don't understand. She's kind of emotional and she'll just go off. And I said, I don't believe that. I don't believe that at all. I think she's just been around men who don't understand her and who aren't really willing to listen and honor her. And I've been married to her for 34 years. She's never, ever had an episode of PMS. She's the most amazing, intelligent, uh, gifted woman I've ever met. And, uh, and what causes her to blossom is the fact that I seek to and work hard at understanding who she is, her personality, her goals, her dreams. And when, when a woman has a man who's willing to say, I'm going to understand who you are, not who I want you to be, but who you are. Um, it, it's just huge. It's just absolutely huge. Um, and so, and I watch this blossoming take place in all kinds of marriages when a guy will just go, okay, this is what God asks me to do. He's going to give me his power and energy to pull this off, even though I don't know how to do it. And I remember saying to my wife, you are not illogical. You are not too emotional and you are not too sensitive. You are just as sensitive. You are just as emotional and you are lo perfectly logical. I just need to understand what you're thinking if you'll share it with me. And I've found that to be true in almost every, now there's some people, you know, men and women who mentally have a mental health issues and that's a different story, but we oftentimes just are unwilling to understand it. I'll tell the story to husbands that of the pinball machine and we've all, maybe many of you played pinball, you know, the old kind where the ball goes down and bing, 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 bing. And, and I said, if you were to look at a man's brain and you were to throw the ball up, a thought goes up. And it comes straight down to the flipper. There's nothing in the middle. And it just, the logic is linear. It's like, this leads to this, leads to this, leads to this. I said, if you were to look at the typical woman's brain, she's got lots of stuff in there. And her thoughts gets bounced, get bounced off of feelings, uh, thoughts, uh, ideas that wouldn't bounce off of a man's thinking. And so what you have to understand is, when she's thinking about stuff, what she visualizes becomes real. It, it's like, oh, wow, I thought about that. It, and it's real until it's proved not. Emotions are real. And what we find is, is that if we can get the data points, we can go, oh, I can plot by your, how you're thinking. And I just have to realize you, you take certain things as real to change the way you're going to act that I don't. And, uh, so are there are there questions that you found work to start to this this dialogue of understanding your partner better? Oh, totally, totally. If you can think of it, uh, this is a new thing. I'm going to probably put in a new book as we go forward. Uh, but 
because I, I didn't have it back when I wrote this original book. But if you think of the soul of the person, there are five, maybe six doors into their soul. And one of the questions that my wife and I now ask each other constantly is, what's the most emotional thing that happened to you today? And one of the doors is the emotion doorway. And many guys are like scared to death of it. We don't understand it. We don't want to go there. We don't want to work with it. But we found that to be such an amazing question. Because if my wife will let me ask that question and then open the door, I'm in her soul. I'm, I'm listening to, hey, this was really emotional to me. Now, what we have a tendency to do as guys is often try and fix it. Don't fix it. Just listen to it. Just experience it with her. Oh, this is fascinating. And, and work through this. this. Why do you think that was emotional to you? What's going on there? Now, some of the other doorways that we found to be very fascinating is the doorway, the mental doorway. Well, what were some of the most interesting things you thought about today? Um, there's the volitional doorway, which is a very interesting doorway into the soul. What are some of the choices that you made today that you either didn't like want to make that you did make, and uh, and you you get into the person's soul to begin to understand it. Then also the the classic ones. What are your dreams? If if life is ideal, this is a question my wife and I ask at the beginning of every year. We're going through this process. If life is ideal five years from now, what's happening in the nine relationships of life? You know, we'll all have about nine major relationships: marriage, family, work, finances, God, uh, friends, uh, church, or you know worldview, community, society, and yourself. And uh, so we began to plot out. And I, in fact, well, the way I do it with my wife, I, for myself, I write it down on a legal pad and I'm right. Oh, there's what I want five years from now. And this is great. And then, but I'll sit down across the, the counter from her and I'll, I'll have the legal pad and I'll ask her, okay, in our marriage, five years from now, it's perfect. It's ideal. You couldn't possibly imagine it being even any better. Where have we gone? What are we doing? What, what's going on in it? And I write down everything she says. And uh, in fact, when each of my girls graduated from college, I, they call it the Mimi's conversation because I went to a restaurant out here in California called Mimi's and I took them to breakfast and we spent two, three hours of me just asking them questions to fill out what do they want their life to look like and uh, for the next five years. And my oldest, we've done that plotting plan twice. My, my youngest, we just did it for the first time. And uh, I was fascinated by the daughter's getting married. Her mother asked her a few years ago, she said, well, what's happening? And you know, what's going on and different things. She said, oh, dad and I've got it all planned out. And I didn't plan anything. All I did was just ask her the questions about if life were ideal five years from now, what would it look like for you? How much money are you making? Where are you living? Um, are you married? Are you not? Do you have kids? Um, and, and this plan emerged out of her. And what's interesting is, is that it, in every one of their lives, what they planned, what they thought is coming true. Were, so was it easy what, to, to encourage dreaming in that scenario versus like actually really down to earth, logical planning of, oh, well, I need to do this, this and this to be able to accomplish this in five years. So I don't even want to put that down because it's too comp. Like, how did that look like to actually dream versus be really technical? Well, that's why you ask um, the five-year question, because at five years, everybody turns off their how. They stop asking, I don't know how I'm going to get there. I don't have a clue. 
I just want you to dream. I just want you to think if God were to bless you marvelously, what would you be doing? Where would you be at? What would what experiences would you have had? And then that, and I just say, look, God's going to figure out how to get there if if, you, if that's what you righteously want. And uh, and I've seen that happen in my life, my wife's life, um, my kids' life. It this whole idea of let me understand who you are. And each of my girls are radically different. I'm I'm so proud of them. And you know, one's working with Nike as an, a kind of an executive for them and just doing amazing things. Uh, one is a, a school teacher in the Oakland uh, schools and uh, getting married to a terrific young man who's who's is just just everything we prayed for. Um, and then my youngest is uh, getting a marine biology master's at St. Andrews in Scotland. Um, and uh, so it's just there's something about when someone else believes in you and says, tell me your dreams, someone you trust. Um, and the first person that should be, I think, should be the husband. Um, then it should be the dad. Uh, and, you know, mom is obviously in there at the same time. But uh, there's there's something powerful. So we're not getting very far on the seven skills here. But uh, that's OK. This is all this is all great stuff. And I'm curious if um, like what yours looked like this year when you were doing it, like what 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 are you looking forward to in five years? Oh, well, five years from now, we're we're you know, I'm I see myself. We went through this whole process and my wife and I just made this prayer list. and. Uh, and I, in fact, I talked to my boss and I said, you know, I still see myself, you know, being here uh, 10 years from now. And then after that, you know, cause I don't believe kind of in retirement. I just want to keep going. I said, I'm going to try and pastor other churches in parts of the country we've never been to and help them. Um, I seem to be a person who gets usually sent to an area or a place uh, or an, a job that nobody else wants to rescue it and to fix it. Um, and, uh, and so, okay, let's go do that. And so we've got these plans for traveling the world. We want to take river cruises. We want to, you know, do this and do that. And and uh, my wife sees that she might want to be retiring in, you know, in five, six years. And so what does that look like? We we look at, okay, what does the financial element look like? What is my relationship with God looking like? And and I, I'm, you know, enjoying really a real significant closeness with God. Um, and I, I wanted that even more, you know, and, and you okay, what, what do I look like? What do I weigh? You know, what, how am I feeling like uh, valuable and significant? Um, so yeah, we're, we're kind of walking all those numbers, all those experiences. We want to go to Australia and New Zealand, um, you know, uh, and uh, I would love to do some kind of seminar over there so that it would be a business trip. But, uh, you know, uh, we can, we can figure something out. I'm sure there's some listeners of this podcast that can uh, make something like that happen. And I have to say, your your enthusiasm and excitement about your five year plans, it's just you have a huge smile. So my thought is you when you're we're going through the understanding here and look at how much joy you get just talking about what five years might look like and none of this has happened yet. This is just just dreaming. It's just putting it out into the world. Um, and it all starts with just such simple questions. And so I'm curious about the next one, which is security. And um, now are these, you, you talked about how a, a man's brain many times is very, very direct and, and, and straightforward, and it's not bouncing around in all these other categories. Is this acronym HUSBAND that we're going through, is it in order? Do you have to start at the top or 
could you be okay in some of these and some of them is a big weakness for you? Like actually, how does that look in when you're diagnosing sort of a relationship? Well, I made these spell out the word husband so that men could remember it. Cause I used to tell the guys, I say, look, I just want you to memorize H U S B A N D. And if there's a problem in your marriage, it's one of them. So just, just be looking and your wife will tell you which one it is. If, if you're willing to have her tell you. And now, so it's not in order of, you know, other than the, I just wanted to make it spell something so guys could remember it. Now I do believe that everything flows from honor. If the, the man who mentored me and uh, as I look at scripture, the idea here is if I do not live with my wife in an honoring way, if I don't put her number one, then, then everything else is up for grabs. It, it's just, and in fact, this is one of the things under the honor one, just to go back. And this doesn't feel um, fair to most men, but I tell them, this is the way it is. Your wife doesn't mean to do this, but she will run tests on you every day to find out how important she is to you that day, because she needs to know. And so she's going to, the way it works in our home or, or in many homes is the, the guy will come home from work. If the lady's there, then, uh, you know, he'll sit down on the couch, maybe, you know, grab a soda, pizza or whatever else. And, and he's getting into the game and she just will ask a question right then, honey, could you take out the trash? And then she adds a two word addition that changes it from a trash assignment to a test. And it is for me. <laughs> and the guy thinks I can get to it. The game's just getting started. Or that's a really the crucial point. And what she's saying is, if I'm more important than your comfort or the game, you should turn that off and come and help me. And what happens is, is that she, what the guy doesn't understand is she has a printout every day that says to her, how important am I to him? And she needs to know, am I number one? Now, um, and if she doesn't get number one in terms of importance, not time, but number one in terms of importance, that I could interrupt anything, that I could, I'm important to him, then she can't respond to you. She can't react to you in the same way. And now what I found is, and this is one of the things my mentor taught me, he just said, it takes about three and a half months for you to prove to your wife that you're going to put her number one. And after three and a half months of every day, you pass her tests because she's going to run a test on you every day. And if you pass the test every day for three and a half months, all of a sudden, and I've seen this happen both in my own marriage and in others, they'll just go, you know, it's been a while since you've been golfing. Have you called up bills lately? I think you need to, maybe, are you working as hard as you could? Because they feel something quiets down in them. Something goes, I am important and he's proved it. And he's going to keep proving that to me by this little, could you change the light bulb for me? Could you fix dinner tonight? Could you watch the kids? Um, just a little thing. Now, there, there are some women, and I know guys are screaming on the podcast right now. They're saying, my wife takes total advantage and my honeydew list just gets longer and longer. And a honeydew list is not a test. The first one may be, but the lengthy honeydew list, that's where you have to have discussions and you have to work through different things. And that's where we get into that, the A and the husband, you have to have an understanding and an agreement system. But really, if if you're going to say to your wife, man, I really care about this relationship and I really want it to go big. I want it to be wonderful. Then you have to prove every day you're number one to me. You're number one. And uh, and and it's so easy for me 
thinking about dating when you talked about conquering. Yes, yes. Proving number one, that's that's the whole goal when that's you're the, yeah. you're I'm choosing you today over anyone else. I'm and, and you it's so easy. It's it it's what you 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 really work to do. But for some reason we get married and eh, I'm comfortable now. She knows she knows she's number one for me. Like I married her. Of course she knows. Yes, yes. some guys will even tell me that, hey, I told her I loved her and that's still in force until I revoke it. I said, that's not good enough. You, you, you've got to actually do it. In fact, I remember um, my mentor said, here's what's going to happen. Sometime between two weeks to six months after you get married, the conquer mode in you will go down and you'll want to go conquer business. You want to go conquer finance. Something else will rise up and you're going to have to make a choice right then when she runs the test. Am I going to choose her? And I remember right after we got back from our honeymoon, it was a delightful honeymoon. The marriage was great. We had a tremendous time and we were going to bed and she leans over to me and asks me this really deep question. It's all dark. And I realized, oh, it's here because I, ha- I want to go to bed. But she wants to talk about this and talk about that. And I, I had to make a choice. I have to really open up to her if I'm going to make her my best friend, which I promised her I would. I have to. And so I remember, okay. And so I kind of unzipped my soul and began to share. And we began to, and I thought, what happens is somewhere between two months to six months, loving your wife becomes a choice you have to make rather than it's easy because I'm trying to win her. And I feel like it wouldn't be worth anything if it wasn't a choice. Yes. If it was easy and it didn't take effort every single day, why would you even want that? Yeah, because yeah, maybe you're 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 not married to the right person or whatever. Although that's a whole different scenario. But yeah, you, there's a sense in which I want to keep winning her, but we can't naturally keep ourselves in conquer mode. We have to choose. That's why the subtitle of the book, um, "Becoming a Godly Husband," is the hardest thing a man will ever do is really love his wife, because he and yeah. And what about the, the the days where you fail the test? I mean, can you? It sounds like there's some room for mistakes oh, totally. here. If it can go for months and months and months and months, or in the case of the the woman you were describing, years and years and years. Yes. So is there like? I know I'm not perfect, and I know I I make these these mistakes sometimes where I'm you know it's been a really long day. I'm not feeling well. I lay down in bed, and then she's like, "Hey, like." wants to talk about a vacation or something. Exactly. And I'm like, I just want to go to sleep tonight. <laughs> exactly. Like, exactly. when is it okay to just, to occasionally just not do that? <laughs> yes. And sometimes what I found in, in our marriage, and this is a part of the understanding uh, principle is that our wives are much more sensitive than us. And I found that I had to apologize at the beginning of our marriage about once a week. Then I got it all the way out to once every two weeks until we had kids. And then it was back to once a week. Um, and, uh, it just sensitive to the fact that, Hey, I got a little upset or I didn't respond right. And, uh, now what I tell the guys and what's been true is if you are trying to put her number one, if, if you skip a day, then just the clock resets. And so you now start again, day one, and you have to go three and a half months. And, uh, there's one of the things you, you want to do is, um, and I talk about this in the book and, and this has been kind of a major point in, in many of the seminars is that men are like buffaloes. Um, we have thick skin, um, big heads, you know, kind of, and we can, 
when we're at work, I used to work for the Teamsters, uh, you know, delivering Coca-Cola to various places. And uh, we would insult each other and, oh, you look idiot, you look terrible. And we'd have a lot of fun with that. And, and guys can be very sarcastic. They can win, win, you know, win contests in a sense by being sarcastic at work. And many of them bring that home. And their wife is not mm -hmm. laughing because they're the mm -hmm. brunt of the sarcasm. What, what caused them to be a winner and liked and stuff at work does not work at home. It damages the marriage, the sarcasm, the making her the brunt of the joke, that kind of process. And what we have to do is we have to say, you're number one. I'm going to always uplift you. I'm always going to protect you. And I'm going to apologize. And uh, I, can, I can remember, uh, you know, I have to apologize in my marriage about once every week to two weeks because I've just inadvertently done something. My wife, she's wrong about once every six years. And uh, I get so excited when she's wrong because it's like a rare, it's like a Haley's Comet comes through. And uh, I can remember the second time that she was wrong, thinking to myself, this is so exciting. This, I'm not wrong here. This is her fault. This is her fault. Totally. And, uh, and you're just like lean back and you're just, oh, yeah. oh you know, gonna I'm going to enjoy gonna, this was, one. And I remember I made the mistake <laughs> of praying about it. And I said, God, can I really let her have it? Because she's really clearly totally wrong. And, and I got an argument with God as he's saying, no, I think you ought to bless her. I think you ought to love her more. And I thought, no, 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 no. If, if, I don't, if I don't make a point of this, I have to wait another six years before she's going to do something wrong. And in that process of talking with God about it, he convinced me to, we had a couple of kids at that point. He said, why don't you just go get your wife a gift to just thank her for all the wonderful things she has done? I thought, no, no, this is the time for me to really put the screws. And finally, he convinced me. So I put up the kids. We went. And we lived 45 minutes from the nearest grocery store and department store. So we drove, we got this gift. And when my wife came home, she was working on her master's program. And, uh, and we presented her the gift. We were so excited about giving her the gift that I kind of forgot for a little bit. And what's interesting is my wife, you know, just broke down in tears. And then she said, oh, I don't deserve this. You're so amazing. And then she then confessed to more wrong than I would have ever even thought to ream her for. And it was like, oh, this whole thing works in a different way than what I thought it would work. You know, it's like, um, it's not my job to convict her. That's God's job. That's her job. Um, and uh, my job is to love her. No, we're not getting and you very just, far through you, these things, but I've got way too many stories. You, this is okay. And you just covered two of my favorite learnings from the book that helped me immediately in my own marriage. Oh, good. One one of was exactly what you talked about, about little comments that are hurtful, that are completely jokes from me. They mean nothing. Totally, but totally. They, 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 once I was reading that, I go, wow, I actually do this. Uh, little comments. And I'd love to think of some examples, like um, just so people listening can hear. They're nothing like awful. They're yes. little things. Like, I, I, I can't even think of it. Like, you're wearing those sweatpants again? Or some co like little comments that just are rude yes. and uh, how they can really undermine like everything. Or, yes. or I, I, I've never liked that. Or, I, oh, this meal again? That's that's an easy one. Like, oh, this this again? Oh. Yes, like, exactly. And I started hearing myself make comments like that after reading it. And I go, okay, this is this is. I should be a stronger man than to make those comments to the person I put in the first position or to anyone really, but especially yeah. my wife. No, that's well said. And then, and then the second one 
that you you started to kind of talk about was saying you're sorry instead of asking for forgiveness. Yeah. And that one was extremely, extremely useful and helpful. I don't know which of which it goes under, but can you talk about what, what the difference is between ask, saying you're sorry and asking for forgiveness is? Yeah, no, uh, that's under the understanding category, which is the, the Bible specifically says, understand that your wife is more sensitive, more fragile than you. Uh, it's sometimes been translated the word weaker, but it doesn't mean weaker in terms of less. It means more like a expensive vase, like this, this incredibly delicate painting. And, uh, and so w- women by nature are more sensitive than men are uh, to uh, emotional situations and the, the surrounding environments. And so what we have to understand is we're, we're more kind of plow horses, buffaloes, that kind of thing. And they're butterflies. And uh, so when, if, if they're going to be offended and wounded, and the, the thing that you were just talking about, really, I remember when I was taught this um, and my mentor kind of just drilled this into my brain, I went, oh my goodness, that's why no one wants to have anything to do with me, is that I would throw what I would think were just little sarcastic remarks, little things that were very funny, um, and they were, they were pebbles to me. They were just little pebbles. And, uh, and he said, you throw it at a buffalo, the buffalo doesn't feel it. You, you tape it to the wing of a butterfly and the butterfly can't fly. And, you know, I mentioned this from your book to a, a, a friend of mine. And I he, he mentioned exactly what you said, but also you, you tape enough of those to a buffalo event and they're going to feel those pebbles. Yes, eventually. Yes. But what, what happens is we celebrate people who are good at spitting out those pebbles or throwing them on that work. Um, they're so witty yeah, and clever oh, yeah. and, you know, <laughs> now, and what I found, and cause I, I do, you know, seminars and speeches and sermons and stuff all the time. I said, I've realized sarcasm is very good for presentations because they make people pay attention, but they're lousy for interpersonal communication. And you, cause now, and I, I'll tell people this all the time. Now this kind of dates me and how old I am. Every time someone says something, I still hear Don Rickles and Roseanne Barr's response in my head. I still hear some kind of sarcastic, witty uh, put down that I could say back. And it, it really, what I had to decide was I can't say those things. And for a long time, I just had to be silent. And it took me a long time to figure out what positive things to say, how to be positive and encouraging and 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 helpful to people and uh so what i will say to husbands is if you hear that really witty thing that would really get everybody laughing at work don't say it be boring say it straight or or don't say anything at all until you learn how to be positive and i think uh there's a lot of interesting help out there that can help people learn how to say some positive things and uh and i've learned how to do that so it can be we can have better relationships it's hard to give praise for some reason. I, I, I don't know why it just feels difficult for me to do. Was it, was it natural for you to, to, to be positive and give praise to, to your, your wife and daughters, or was it something you really had to work at? I I really had to work at it, but I had been drilled on that this idea, you know, I, I've read, I don't know, I, I've read how to win friends, influence people like 50 times. And I made my kids read it 
five times a piece. Um, I, I gave them, I said, I'll pay you a hundred bucks if you read it. Um, and uh, so I had them read it over and over and over again, just to, cause some of those principles of, you know, Hey, don't be criticizing, appreciate, praise, all those kinds of things. And I am by my own nature, one of the most cynical, uh, sarcastic. Um, I remember my first girlfriend, I would call her every night and we would insult one another for two hours. And then I wondered why the relationship didn't go anywhere, you know, because I was really good in high school at, at putting people down really good. And, uh, and I still have that in there and I can't wake it up. It, it, it's not good for me to let it out. Now it helps me make speeches. It helps me, you know, make big presentations because I can throw a little witty thing in there as long as it's not putting a specific person down. Yeah, that makes sense. And then uh, specifically about the difference between asking for forgiveness oh, yes, versus I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yes. When so you say I'm sorry. That was, that was, uh, that was unbelievable for me. I had never heard anything like that before. Well, cool. Well, tell me, describe to me how that struck you. Well, it, it's just saying you're sorry. It maybe makes you feel, makes you feel better, but it doesn't give that other person a chance to say if they believed you or if they're actually going to forgive you. Um, and if you, if, if you say, Hey, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And if they can't say yes, then you have some more work to do to prove that you really meant it. You're not going to do it again. And you, you gloss over that entire part. If you just say you're sorry. If you don't ask for, will you forgive me? You're skipping the chance for that person to say no. Like, no, I don't. I need you to put some more work in here. Oh, that's that's well said. You you really captured it. You really captured it. Because this this was really hard for me um, to, to go through the process that I was taught of real forgiveness. Because if I say I'm sorry, the other person says, yeah, I'm sorry too. Okay. And yes, you are sorry. <laughs> or, or, you know, and it, it's not helpful. Now, every once in a while, you know, if you can, you can use an I'm sorry for a, and it'll work, but it has to be for super minor things. But the, the issues are, am I willing to have you tell me how I hurt you? Um, you know, the, I call it seeking education. You know, you get gentle in your spirit, um, then you seek education. Um, uh, let me just spend a second here. One of the reasons why our wives will not often share with us what's really hurt them is we're not gentle enough. We're not showing that we're ready to be gentle. We're still defending. And uh, um, I, you, know, um, you, you have to be willing to say the, the key that opens the door of your wife's soul and telling you what's really wrong, what's really going on is can I be gentle? And, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, it's really easy for me to want to defend something I did based on, I love you so much. You know, I love you so much. I would never hurt you on purpose. Why are you hurt? Exactly. And I I would never hurt you on purpose. Why are you hurt? And if that's, if now I like, if just thinking about that, it sounds so silly in this moment, but in a real world, emotional, uh, episode, I think that I'm like, why are you hurt? I would never hurt you on purpose. Yes. Yes. Why can't you get over this? Yes, exactly. I remember a guy six foot two, 250 pounds standing over his wife saying those exact things. Come on, let's talk about this. And I said, she can't open up. I I happened to be in the room when he was doing this. I said, she can't open up if you're hulking over her and you have all this emotion 
And so the first thing is be gentle and get gentle. And for most guys, it means whisper. I know for my wife, I have to pretty much whisper. I have to sit across the table from her and I have to say, help me understand. I, I really want to know. And then that's seek a rebuke, seek education. Um, hey, I, obviously I hurt you, but, and I just now know I, it's probably because I didn't honor you or, you know, but help me understand what's really going on because I need to understand. The Bible says a, a rebuke goes deeper into a wise man than a hundred blows into the back of a fool. Um, and we, we need to be open to the idea that other people can give us feedback. Um, and, and by the way, feedback, we all need feedback. And we have to be open to the person who knows us the best to give us some feedback. Um, and uh, that it's kind of another principle here, but it's, it's in this whole idea is I will, I will say to my wife, once every quarter, once every month, how do you see me limiting myself? And that's kind of her opening to give me feedback. You know, if you keep wearing that, nobody's going to respect you as a professional. If you keep, you know, picking your nose, if you, if you don't learn this or, or, you know, we need to work on that because um, she wants me to succeed and she can see some things that maybe I can't see. So anyway, the, as I go back to this idea of forgiveness, get gentle in spirit, seek education and, and then, then admit, you know, okay, I was wrong. I was wrong. And now many times you have to admit that you were wrong about something that you don't think is a big deal, but it's a big deal for her. I, that's difficult. That's, that's, that's so hard. Yeah, and, totally. Cause it doesn't matter if it's small to me, if it hurts her, yes. then it's a big deal. I'm so sorry that I did not give you a call before I, I came home or before I was late. Uh, and, uh, and you want to say, Hey, why don't we just get over this? And no, it, this is a big deal. And, you're, you're right. I was wrong on that. I was wrong. And, uh, and then I can, I can think of examples of that so clearly too, where I was running late and she was cooking dinner and dinner was going to be ready exactly timed with when I was going to be leaving. And I didn't let her know when I was leaving. And then it, you know, it, it's just, and I can think not in them. It's so easy. Do you go back and analyze some of these scenarios? Because it's so easy after the fact to realize where I went wrong. <laughs> like, oh, it was so obvious. In the moment, it's like my, my, it's, I'm being attacked. Like, oh, you're hurt. That means I'm a bad person. Well, I, I, you can't be hurt. I'm a great person. But later, it's like, oh, well, it's so obvious after the fact. No, totally. And one of the things that I have to remember, and that when I talk with, with guys, you have to think to yourself, I want a great relationship. And this is the way to get it. I have to be willing to hear how I offended her. I have to say I was wrong. I have to ask her, will you forgive me? And have her, because it's a release to her soul to say, yes, I will forgive you. And then- And it doesn't matter if it would offend you. No, That's irrelevant. No, it's totally irrelevant. And, and sometimes I'm apologizing for things that I, I don't even see the, but from her perspective, it's wrong. So I, oh, you're right, I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that to you. And, uh, and that I, cause, because I want a great relationship, because I want us to be able to work through this process. Now, what I usually realize in my own life, and as I talk with guys, the process of a healthy forgiveness, a good forgiveness um, for a serious thing is going to take between 30 minutes to 45 minutes. It's going to take that long. And it's either that or 
three days to three weeks of eggshells all over and we've broken the relationship and it's all tense. And when is she going to forget about this? She's never going to forget. She's going to remember what you're wearing when you, when you did it. And so it'd be helpful if you were willing to say, give me the feedback and I, I don't want to hurt you. And you have to prove by your gentleness in a willingness to go through a biofeedback mechanism called your wife telling you you were wrong to get a better relationship. And often, you know, you have this great makeup time, you have this great, let's go out and talk because you've been willing to, to work with this. And then the final one, and this is very important to keep people from divorcing, is it's important. Uh, you know what I was just gonna say is, you can be right and you can still get a divorce. And are you really right in that scenario anymore? And that's why I think how you keep talking about th these principles are, and you wrote it right on, on the book, it, the, it's about having a good relationship with your wife. It's not about being right. Exactly. And I've seen an awful lot of people in divorce court who are right, men and women, and they're pressing their rightness, but it's not a great relationship. And they're not, what they want is they think if everybody just agrees with me, then we'll have a great relationship. But that's not how relationships work. And uh, so one of the things that we've put in and that has been very important for many, many marriages is the repentance plan. John the Baptist uh, in the New Testament uh, kind of introduces this idea. Um, and that is, hey, if you agree that you were wrong, what should I do to make sure that I don't ever do this again? And John the Baptist says to the Pharisees who were hypocritical at that point, he said, look, go bring forth fruit in keeping with your repentance. And I remember teaching this to the church, teaching this to different people. Um, and uh, one guy, uh, he would uh, make mess up his wife's kitchen every uh, Saturday was he was going to go watch the boxing match in the next room and leave the kitchen a mess. And I said, you know, you just need to make a repentance plan if you keep doing this because you admit you, you should clean up after yourself, but you don't. And so his wife said to him, you know, if you do this again, you're going to do all the dishes for the next day. And, and he hated doing the dishes. And I remember sharing that story in a sermon. And my wife picked up on that. And she then came to me and I hate it when my wife applies my own sermons to me, but uh, she said, she said, you know, you have consistently said you're going to be home at five o'clock and I got dinner ready and it's five 30 and you're not here. And you, you call me or you tell me I, I saved another marriage. And one time I remember she looked at me and she said, there's another marriage you're going to need to save if you don't start on, you know, coming home when you said, I, we, we live five minutes from the church. And she said, here's, here's what I've said. I apologize. We went through all things. She said, if the wheels of your car do not hit the gravel of our driveway by 5.30 without a phone call or a reason, you're going to do the dishes for a whole week. <laughs> and I said, you're right. I, and now I remember, now here's what happens. I remember that I never had to do that. She remembers that I had to do that once. So I must have blocked it out, a total denial thing. But uh, what's interesting is I watch people who don't have ways, small little ways, do the dishes for me because this is really important to me, or they don't have ways to bring correction to the relationship short of divorce. So they store them all up. And then when they finally reach the straw that broke the camel's back, then they get divorced. But um, uh, James Dobson years ago uh, wrote that marriages have to have respect. I have to respect you enough to take your correction. 
And, and if you don't have the respect of value that, hey, I just can't have you do that anymore. That's why we have that idea of the repentance plan um, that do we care enough about each other to say this is important to me and, and I really need to be able to do this if, if you do that again. Yeah, I love I love that uh, that example there. That is so clear, and I think that would be a good um, addition in the next book that you're you're working on because it's just so simple. And I need simple to 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 really understand uh, how how some of this works. So what's what's next? We 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 probably can't talk through all of them unless we go through some of them a little bit quicker. Um, <laughs> Sorry about that. No, this is great. We may we may have to be a two part series on these. Um, but next is is security, and what does security mean to you? Now, security um, is this idea that that is really foreign to most men. Most men are able to carry their security with them, um, and uh, it was explained to me um, and just really hit home to me where. Uh, they had this big seminar and this lady was leading it, a marriage seminar. And this couple were there, you know, I think it was a fireman and, and his wife were there to try and make sure their marriage went better. And the lady in front said, gentlemen, I want to ask you a question. And she said, how many of you in your life have ever been in fear for your life? Just really afraid for your life. And none of the guys really wanted to raise their hand. And finally, two or three guys raised their hand. And uh, she said, well, tell me about that. And, and so they said, well, you know, I was in Nam or I was in Iraq or, or whatever else. And I was in fear for my life or, or, you know, I had made a wrong turn. And, and, you know, this one lady said, one guy said in LA and I got into the bad part of town and, and I was really afraid that, you know, at the wrong time in the wrong place and that kind of thing. And, and then, so, and so he, she said, okay, that's about four out of this group of maybe 200 couples. So a hundred guys kind of thing. And, uh, and then she said, she said, let me, let me show you what's happening in your wife's life. And uh, she said, how many of you ladies have ever been in fear for your life? And every hand went up, every hand. And then she said, she said, put them down. She said, how many of you ladies in the last six months have, have felt either significantly afraid or in fear of your life? And every hand went up. And then she said, put them down. She said, in the last month, how many of you ladies have been afraid significantly or in fear of your life, and every hand went up. And she's and what she and the guys just their eyes just bugged out, and they said they're shocked. They're like, "What are they? What are you talking about? I don't remember anything." Right, and yet they women live in a world in which they are threatened all the time in all kinds of different ways. Whether it's and, and there is there is pressure on them, and so what. What we have to realize is we're trying to create this space where they feel secure. And, and we don't feel this insecurity. And we just think, well, just get over it. You're too sensitive. You're too emotional. No, hey, this, this guy at work made this comment. Uh, this person in the neighborhood looked at them weird, you know, um, or, you know, the whole reality, unfortunately, of sexual assault and sexual harassment is real. It's, it's real. And uh, what what we have to realize is that our wives are asking us, obviously with their help and with their leadership and other things, to help create a space for safety. And that safety space means financially safe. It means emotionally safe. It means mentally safe, spiritually safe. And so that's what I talk about in this idea of security. 
Because if the husband does not help create this secure space, the wife cannot blossom. Um, it's, it's kind of like um, the word husband means husbandman, which means a gardener. And you, you pledge yourself to grow the vine, to grow the garden, to grow the vineyard powerfully. That means you have to protect it and, you know, and, and get the little pots out there to make it warm when it's cold, with the tarps over it if it's freezing, to do the things that are protective of it. And uh, many men, because they feel like, well, I don't feel unsafe, they just think that their wife doesn't feel unsafe. And every woman is different, uh, but usually the lack of safety, I've seen some guys who, uh, especially, and this is now a phenomenon I see with the some of the young men my daughters date, where the guys are not willing to work hard to financially provide a safe place, to emotionally, emotionally means are you being sarcastic? Are you being overly emotional? Anger is a big issue uh, for many men where, and especially, and I don't know why this is, I know it was true in my life and God really had to work on this with me, is that we feel like the people closest to us can handle the brunt of our anger. We can cut loose with them. Well, they know it. I can see why that would be. And anger has been something I've had to keep a very, very close eye on just based on how I was raised. And so I identify it very early and I've learned how to deal with it through, through a lot of uh, effort. Um, but it's it's that idea that, well, I'm angry at you, but you know I love you. Or I'm being angry in front of you, you know I love you, so it, it's okay. But uh, but gentlemen, it's not, they, that's, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. Right, no, and that's why we talk about it in the book. And, and I was just doing a, a, a seminar on anger um, just because I, I've had to build a refinery to handle my anger because anger is raw energy. It's like raw oil coming out of the ground and you got to separate it into kerosene and gasoline and plastics and all the other things in order to use it for the thing that it was meant for. And it's supposed to energize you to change. To, to be. So are, do you get angry about the state of marriages? I find myself, yes, uh, that, that energy. And so that's why it's interesting. I've had to channel that into, I've written five books on marriage um, and, uh, and how do I try and help? How do I try and help guys and ladies understand how this works? And, and uh, you know, this, this whole project, let me just push in there. You mentioned another book. Um, I ended up, I was asked by a premarital couple. I know you've written these books on becoming a godly husband, becoming a godly wife. And, uh, but I just want the down and dirty version. What do I have to do to have a great marriage? I'm just, I love this girl. What do I have to do? And so I wrote a book and I just stripped out all of that. I just said, these are the 15 habits that great marriages have. And, uh, and so it, it's kind of coming at this, not from the, let me tell you all the why it's just, let me tell you the how uh, we called it mm-hmm. building a ridiculously great marriage. <laughs> and, uh, because it's absolutely amazing. And we, we do small groups on that. We do seminars on that. And yet it's really helpful, especially for us guys to just know, what do I have to do? What, what's the, what's the actual, if you really brought it down and what I've watched is great marriages, marriages where you just go, man, they're really enjoying one another. They have some version of these 15 habits. 
You know, you mentioned earlier about listening versus fixing. And is there a time, is this a bad question to say, hey, do you want me to listen or do you want me to help fix this? Like, is that a fair question or is that not a good question? That's a great question. In fact, you've, you've actually hit upon one of the key elements that a husband needs to understand. It's under the idea of uh, um, nurture that one of the major needs that a wife has, a woman has, is to be in a interactive, communicative relationship where she she listened to you by you and you listen to her. And what many guys, we're in solve mode all the time. And we have to be willing to embrace the idea um, that I need to just listen to my wife and something about listening to her is healing to her. So, you know, I, I have people that come see me all the time, all day. And yet I save the greatest amount of energy and one hour to have a session with my wife, whether when I'm home or whatever, because I'm going to just focus on her, listen to her because she's the most important person uh, in my life. And I just tell me about your day. Tell me what's happening. Um, how, do, how do things go? And I'm just focused. Now, in in psychological terms, it's called Rogerian listening, which is I'm just listening. I'm just uh, aerobically listening. Tell me about that. Interesting. I'm asking questions. I'm summarizing. Did I get this right? That kind of thing. And then at the beginning, I used to ask, do you want me to solve this? And and she would say, no, no, I don't want you to solve it. Now I kind of know her well enough to know where I'll say, do you want another perspective on that? She'll say, yeah, I do. Now, my way of saying another perspective is I'll give you some solutions. And many times, no, I just want you to listen to me. And I've been amazed how many times, I can't even count the number of times where at the end of the hour, my wife will just go, I just feel so much better. This is, that was just wonderful. Oh, this is just great. And all I did was just aerobically, you know, listen intentively and and follow her train of thought instead of changing it to mine or whatever else. Now, and typically the way it works in a marriage is your wife and you will go for about 20 minutes on a topic and then you're done and then they'll switch and then they'll ask you a question. Then you need to go on another topic or whatever else. And uh, I kind of, now what's difficult for many men is that your wife wants to talk about emotions and you don't because you don't understand them. So what I tell the guys is you're, two pictures. You have to think of this as fly fishing for this, this slimy, slithering thing that's an emotion. And you're just, you're just out there. And then, oh, tell me about that. And then, I got one on the line. And then it goes on runs and it goes, and you're having all this fun and you're just doing this. And then after you bring it in, you hold up, you say, did I get it right? And she'll say, yes, that's exactly what I was feeling. And you put it in the bag. And then you go and fish for another one. And about once a day, your wife has about three to five slimy emotional fish that she wants you to fish for. And if you'll do that, you will be her hero because that's what her girlfriends do. And they don't need to solve the problem. No, they're when just they, saying, when they, what did your husband do today? Or or they'll say, that person's such a jerk. I can't believe that they would treat you that way. Like I, it's You don't deserve that. But it's never like, you need to quit that job, find a different job. You need to do this. You need to go tell them this. That's my advice, but that's not listening advice. No. In fact, <laughs> let, let me just sum this up because this is important for guys. Uh, we are working on another book um, on intimacy 
um, and how to talk about sex and saving your marriage through sex. We're working on that book too. Women are willing to trade emotional intimacy for physical intimacy. The intimacy that now men and women both want both, but the guys want physical sexual intimacy, 70% more. The women want emotional intimacy. And she wants you to emotionally understand her, interact, listen, get to this connected point. And that tells her, in fact, in this, the, some of the research we've done is that guys, all the surveys tell us that guys feel accepted and emotionally satisfied after physical sexual intimacy won't get into physical sexual intimacy until they feel accepted emotionally uh, and physically. And so it's like this dance of how do you work through this process? And you do that through nurturing them, through conversation, uh, through romance, through security, honor, understanding. Um, and then, oh, okay, hey, hey, we're in this great relationship. I will give that to you as an expression of our intimacy. And the guy saying, if I don't get this, I don't feel accepted emotionally by you. It's a very interesting yeah. dynamic. So there's a there's a definite mismatch there yeah. that ends up causing a lot of problems because the woman isn't being physical because she doesn't feel emotionally validated. And the man doesn't feel emotionally validated because he's not, he's not getting physical affection. Exactly. And so... So because he's feeling that way, he's not going to reciprocate emotional value. It it can be a very, very tricky circle. I know it becomes a doom loop. And what you have to understand is that both people have desperate needs. And if he will meet her needs and she will meet his, it'll be this wonderful thing that God created and that will be just delightful. It will fill both of their lives with meaning and purpose and value. But, um, and, you know, all of this stuff, that's a part of what we're talking about. We're talking about emotional intimacy. We're talking about how do you build a great marriage and becoming a godly husband. And then we're, we're finishing up this friend of mine and I, uh, he did brilliant idea of how to talk about this in some really fun ways about the whole sexual intimacy issues and how do that, how do we make, make some progress there. But, and I think it, it comes down to embarrassment that neither person wants to, to, to talk about it because they're embarrassed of, of where they're at in the relationship. And so it's it's un, it's uncomfortable, and they for sure don't want to go to a third party and talk about it. That's even more embarrassing. Well, the book is we're in the process of having it edited and that kind of thing. But the book is the idea that you put it within the dessert analogy to talk about physical intimacy and say, can we have dessert? And how many? And what kind of desserts are we going to have? And it's fascinating how many couples can have those discussions when you put physical intimacy into a dessert analogy and a metaphor. Um, and uh, you know, and so, you know, she's got a name for this dessert and she likes that dessert. And, and then you, okay, how often are we going to have dessert? And, uh, it's just really fun. It's really fun. We, my, my wife and I have this, this weird game we play completely unrelated, but popcorn, uh, the actual snack, yeah. we'll be sitting on the couch and we'll, and we'll say, what's your popcorn score tonight? And, and then she has to say, oh, her popcorn score is a seven. And I'll be like, okay, well, mine's a six. 
if they equal to more than 12, then we're allowed to have popcorn that night. <laughs> if it's not, then we can't have popcorn. You can borrow that for your uh, your your book here. That's great. So it could be. What's your score? Oh well, mine's a six. Oh, mine's a six too. Great. Let's you know. Let's let's, let's have a three. <laughs> or or, let's have or it's a four. Why is it a four? Like what 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 do I need to do? Yeah. Well, I need you to listen to me. Yeah. And like about what my day was like. Well, psh, I'll do that if it gets you to a six. <laughs> <you know? laughs> exactly, and have some clear communication here. And uh, so. One of the things that we're trying to, that I'm trying to do in this book, Becoming a Godly Husband, is to say to men, we can improve and we can have the relationship that we really want and that she really wants with just some learning, um, with some growth. Um, and what I've seen is, is that if you'll grow in this primary relationship, this marriage relationship, it's amazing how it goes over into business. It goes over into friendships. Um, it goes over into children and allows you to have much better relationships because many of us are looking for these things, you know, not at the same levels, but in the other relationships of our life. Yeah, that makes sense. And in these scenarios where you, you're you're in counseling with a woman and, and she's getting ready to leave her husband, if you sit the husband down and talk with him, does he also feel dissatisfied with relationship in many times? Sometimes, many times, uh, Usually a guy will be dissatisfied with two things, companionship or a lack of it and a lack of sexual uh, regular intimacy. Those are the two things that get his notice. Um, so what's the trigger for us to to pay attention to to this as men? Like what before it gets to a point, you, you, you talked about the two conditions usually that lead to divorce or the time periods. How do we identify this early enough to where we can fix it. Yes. Well, let me, one of the illustrations I will use in the beginning of almost every counseling session um, is to, to say to the husband, I will say, now, do you love your wife? And I'll say, oh, yes, I love her. We're having some problems. And do you, and, and I'll say, now understand that to love someone means to meet their needs. So let me give you a, an, an, a chart. Let's just say your wife, you're looking at your wife. What are you doing right now that proves to her that you love her? That what are you doing? And almost all guys will say, "I give her my paycheck. I come home on Friday." Um, most guys, interesting enough, will say, "I bought her a refrigerator. I didn't know why that was so powerful." And then I bought my wife one, and I thought, "Wow, this really is powerful. This is something about it that makes a guy feel really good." And and he'll mention a bunch of different things, um, and. What what I'll say then, and he'll mention five or six things, and she's rolling her eyes. Uh, and I'll say, let's just say that what you're doing are meeting needs in her. But if we were to list the top 100 needs that she had in order of importance, what do you think she would say if the needs that you're meeting, the things you're doing, were number 57, 65, 75, 93, 4, and 7? How much do you think she would feel loved by you if those were the priority level needs you were meeting? And then usually a little dim light will begin to glow above his head and he'll go, oh, maybe she doesn't feel like I love her all that much. And I say, yeah, I, I've got good news for you and bad news. The good news is you don't know what her top 15 are. You just don't because they're not in you. The bad news is you can learn them and it takes work. And then I begin to spell out what we put into this book, Becoming a Godly Husband, because 
these are her top 15 needs. What you want to do is you want to regularly have a checkup or, you know, I'll ask, okay, on a scale of one to 10, how are we doing? And, you know, if she says three, hey, talk to me, help me. If she says six or seven, okay, what would make it a 10? You know, how do we, how do we go better? And she has opinions. I have opinions, that kind of thing where um, I think that everybody should, you know, go to a seminar or be willing to listen to something that might improve their marriage once a year. Um, one of the things that we've tried to do is, you know, go to a, a retreat or a something and just talk and interact and, or maybe have somebody else bring some input or read a book into our lives to say, oh, this is a different angle on that. Let's, how do you, how do you react to that? Um, and uh, I have uh, usually in my jacket pocket um, that I don't have my jacket on is I have a list, a card, stack of cards that will ask us random questions. And my wife will say, pull out one of the cards. And it'll say, what's your best moment? Uh, what's the best compliment you've ever received? I've got a new stack that I just really enjoy. And we've been enjoying those both as a family um, and as a couple that will just ask us questions that I wouldn't think to ask. And those, Did you make those or did you buy them from I someone? I bought them. Um, actually, we got them as a gift for Christmas. I will almost always buy a book if it's full of questions um, or okay. a new deck of questions. And sometimes we find them really interesting. Uh, John Gottman, who's the foremost researcher on marriage in the United States and around the world right now, he has a list of questions you can get on your phone. And my wife and I have gone through those questions a number of times. Um, my friend, um, Dr. John Deloney, created these conversation starters that's great. cards. It's a it's it's little decks of cards. Yeah. There's ones for married couples, there's one for families, and there's ones for friends. And uh, Gary Chapman has some, and he has some books too. Yeah, I and love languages. It, it's 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 fun to go through those questions and uh, and and talk about things you maybe wouldn't normally talk about. And reading your book, I can see how that's going to make emotional connections that nece aren't necessarily natural for us to to make. Yes, totally. And and to just keep keep things going. Um, one of the things that that guys need to think through is, do you have a regular time every day that you listen and talk to your wife? You have to do two things in this. One, you have to listen aerobically. And second, you have to unzip a little of your soul, share some feelings, share some what you're going through. Those are the two things that build a close friendship from your wife's point of view. And, uh, and yeah. that's that, that whole idea of nurture. You find that under the chapter under nurture. How do you work with that and, and, and help her do that? This has been so great and so helpful for me. And it was my own selfish purposes for bringing you on to just get <laughs> deeper on some of these topics as a newlywed and on my honeymoon that I am going to continue to argue. There's no reason that a honeymoon has to end. There's no law that says no. that just because you're back from a vacation. Now, I, my honeymoon vacation ended. That was only regrettably... I don't remember how long we were gone. All I remember is I wish we would have been gone longer. Cause, but uh, the honeymoon, the actual honeymoon, doesn't have to end in my in my book. And I'm going to continue to to argue and uh, against that. I'm going to continue to invest in our marriage to to make that so. But it will end if I don't invest in our marriage and I don't continue to try to grow. And, and that's a fact. The the honeymoon phase. You're absolutely right. If you'll do the work. The honeymoon can continue 
And even if it stopped because of one person's negligence, you can make this thing go back into a very, very positive place. I actually have a, a, a very good friend that gets uh, married again to her spouse every year. And so oh, really? they're by virtue of that, always sort of in that phase, which I think is, is really, really cool. And they've been doing that for a long time. I don't know how long, but it, it, it's, it's just really special that they do oh, interesting. that. So, yes. Um, so I'd love to, to continue talking more about this next time once your, your next book is out, because this is fascinating. And I'm going to link to your book. I'm going to find the 15 habits for build, building a ridiculous, good, ridiculously good marriage and link to that in the show notes for this episode, which I'll put over at quandall.com slash gill. That's quandall.com slash G-I-L. And I'm just so grateful that you came on here. Um, before we, we close up, what are you working on now besides that book that we can support you on? And where can we learn a little bit more about you? Um, well, thank you for having me on. This has been wonderful. Um, we have a website called PTLB, uh, principles to live by.com. Um, and uh, uh, that's kind of explained some of the things that we do. Um, and uh, I am working on a number of different projects. I'm right now finishing up a revision of this book, Becoming a Godly Husband, and adding the materials that uh, I didn't know back when I originally wrote it. Um, and so we got that at the editors and we're working on that. Right now it's too many pages and I got to bring it down a little bit. And then we're working on this book um, called uh, What's for Dessert um, and the Intimacy Cycle, Saving Your Marriage Through Sex. Uh, so we're, we're working on those kinds of things. And I, I'm also working on a book on conflict. How do you reduce conflict? Um, how do you argue well? Um, how do you discuss and all that kind of stuff. So we're working on a number of projects that we hope can really help relationships, marriages, uh, families uh, work through things. Well, I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing. And I know it will have lasting impacts on my marriage with my wife. And uh, when we have kids and trying to be an example for them on on, on many of these these principles that I didn't see growing up and I think are so missing. And I think our television shows, as you mentioned, are not honoring these. They're showing the worst examples of our behavior and basically saying that they're okay. Yeah. And so I'm just so grateful you're out there with this passion to to help us to to really love our wives, because if we do that, we can make the world a much, much better place. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of The James Quandall Show. The show notes for this episode and other goodies can be found at quandall.com. Are you enjoying the show? If you are, please subscribe and leave a review. I may end up reading your review live on the next episode. Subscribing, leaving a review, and telling your friends about the show is the best way to support me and help the show grow. See you next time.